Thank you for joining me for this teaching from Pennington AG Church. We have been studying the New Testament letter of James, written by the half-brother of Jesus to the early church during a time of persecution. Throughout this letter, we are discovering and studying what it means to follow in the pattern of Jesus, what it means to live a life full of the resurrected power and the grace and mercy of Jesus. We are into our fourth week, and as we have structured this, this also means we are into the fourth chapter of James. We have talked about what the gospel means, what our confident hope is in in chapter one. We talked about what a Christian does in chapter two. In the third chapter, we talked about what a Christian says, and now today we will talk about what a Christian feels. And I'm already going to say it ahead of time. I'm sure talking about that God has an opinion on how you should feel and what those feelings should be, I know is not a popular opinion in our climate in 2021. But we are going to hear what St. James has to say about it and look with our own humility at how God guides our feelings and emotions with one another in light of the feelings and emotions of the perfect human in Jesus Christ. Let's dive in. James chapter 4. Verses 1 and 2. What is causing the quarrels and fights among you? Don't they come from the evil desires at war within you? You want what you don't have, so you scheme and kill to get it. You are jealous of what others have, but you can't get it. So you fight and wage war to take it away from them. Pretty big language. James does this. He writes in hyperboles, um, dramatic turns of phrase to show how significant what he is teaching is. And so he talks about being jealous and, and fighting. I'm going to have a little confession here. First off, I will say, hopefully with humility, I am a pretty patient person when it comes to big matters of my life. I can wait a long time or sit in a circumstance for a long time. And um, if things are going chaotic, that's normally when I'm at my best, able to kind of center in. For example, my wife and I dated for 12 years off and on before we were married. I am able to be patient about big, significant things. I am a very impatient person with tiny little things. I am very impatient when there's something I want to eat or I want to watch or I want to do. You can frame it as I suffer from being hangry. If I'm hungry, I will get angry. If I'm hungry, I will eat the worst possible thing for me. And I struggle with self-control over saying no to that. I have a hard time being patient. If there's a new movie I want to see, it hurts me deeply to be like, a week has gone by and everybody's talking about Thanos' snap and what is the blip? And I don't know, I can't have a conversation. I get upset about it. Or my wife tells me, honey, you're 35 and an adult. You should wear a button-down shirt. And I'm like, a t-shirt is so much more comfortable. These areas in my life, I get emotional out of my own impatience of just wanting to be comfortable, of just wanting to have my own pleasures in my life. And so I get it when St. James is telling us that a lot of your quarrels and your fights with each other are out of your desires, are out of your desires for pleasure. The word desire actually that James uses is the Greek word of hedona, which we then use for hedonism in the modern day. 
Hedonism defined as the philosophy that views pleasure as life's goal. You may be familiar with the term hedonism, but usually we understand it in its farthest extreme. You may think of it as some weird island in the Caribbean where people go to where nothing's off limits and ooh, that's scary and creepy. But hedonism itself is just the philosophy that your life goal and your trajectory is about doing what makes you happy and is about seeking pleasure. This is very common in our modern life. It was common during the era of James and the early church because of the wealth and power of the kingdom of Rome. And Israel lived under Rome and most of the early Christians lived under Rome. And so even in the scope of the world they lived in, they had a lot at their disposal and it was easy to make your life about receiving pleasure. In the church then, this wasn't really that problematic for about 1,500 years after the fall of Rome and through the dark and middle ages um, and into the uh, Reformation and the Renaissance. In the last couple hundred years, it's returned again as the world has stabilized somewhat, as American wealth has stabilized, Western wealth has come in. The church now, very real, has to deal with this temptation of making life about our pleasures because we can. You may hear this and say, this doesn't sound right. This doesn't sound right that you're telling me, wait, you don't want me to be happy? Are you saying God doesn't want me to be happy? I think what St. James would say is, not that I don't want you to be happy, I want you to be complete. I want you to be whole and at peace. And if we're honest with ourselves, the pursuit of our pleasure, or as the Declaration of Independence says, the pursuit of happiness, is oftentimes our numbing coping mechanism from the real questions we ask about our broken self, where we wonder about what my eternity looks like. Am I good enough? Am I valued? Do people love me? Have I left too much of a trail of brokenness? Have I ruined myself too much. These broken aspects of our life that James is repeatedly trying to address for us, he's saying the pursuit of pleasure oftentimes is our smokescreen from avoiding the true work of being made free or being made complete. Anything can become pleasurable. Crocs, kombucha, the recording of somebody else chewing on YouTube that we listen to, all sorts of random stuff we can say make us happy at this point. And depending on who you're talking to, it can be wildly varied on what is or is not pleasurable. But the only way to be complete and whole and at peace is by living in the kingdom of God. And there's only one teacher who leads us into that, and that's Christ Jesus. And what James is saying is, don't lose the point of life. Don't lose the point of eternity in distraction, of trying to numb and medicate yourself from what really is the problem with only one solution, the great physician, Christ Jesus, that heals our soul. And if we talk about pleasure and what makes us happy, we understand that in the person of Jesus, in the New Testament, he didn't have a home to even lay his head. He was not a wealthy man. And as the prophet Isaiah said about him, he wasn't even particularly good looking. Jesus didn't have the trappings of pleasure 
and happiness. He had the eternal truth of peace, of being at whole with himself and his maker. Here is what James is saying and he's talking about specifically here. Obviously, there were problems in the church that he is addressing in this letter. There were quarrels and there were fights in the church over what people wanted and what they considered good. The word he actually uses for quarrels is derived from the word of nations at war. You're, you're at war and at battle with one another over what you think is good and what makes you happy. And one of the historic problems in philosophy about the pursuit of happiness is that we don't all define happiness the same way. We don't all agree on what is good and pleasurable and happy. Thank God that they make pizzas where you can have toppings on just half and other toppings on the other half because we don't agree on what we want. We see it in every evidence of our life. What is pleasurable for you could be miserable for me. One step further, what is pleasurable for you could be at the expense of me and my pleasure. What's pleasurable for you could be something I consider morally reprehensible. And how do we align this? And if our life is directed by the philosophy of do what makes you happy, pursue pleasure as your ultimate goal, we see what James is saying that it tears us apart because we cannot agree on what makes us happy and what is pleasurable. Pleasure becomes a driving divisor between us. As we fight for resources, we fight for what makes us happy, and we pursue happiness at the expense of one another. So, what do we do, James? What do we do? How do I do it? How do you want me to live? Well, thank God he continues in his letter in verse 3. James says, Yet you don't have what you want. You haven't received this pleasure because you don't ask God for it. And even when you do ask, you don't get it because your motives are wrong. You want only what gives you pleasure. I think this is an aside here, a good examination for how we pray and that our prayer life should be far more listening than it is speaking. Far more me inviting God, God, what is good to you about this? God, what is the right thing in this situation? Rather than me saying, God, I want this, give it to me. God, I think this is good. You also should think that. Listen more in your prayer times so that God can speak to you about his kingdom than asking him to recreate ours. Continuing, you adulterers, don't you realize that friendship with the world makes you an enemy of God? Big language. I say it again, if you want to be a friend of the world, you make yourself an enemy of God. Do you think the scriptures have no meaning? They say that God is passionate, that the spirit he has placed within us should be faithful to him. This passage needs to be interpreted in light of, I think, modern misconceptions about what James is saying. When James says to be a friend of the world is to be an enemy of God, he is not talking about people outside of the church as that's the world. And oftentimes we conflate and we misunderstand the two. And we think if you're not a church-going person, you are of the world. 
And so anyone outside of the church is of the world. And so we battle them. We're, we're against them. And I'm going to create a world where I'm only in God's home. I only do Christian things. I hang out with other Christians. I wear Christian clothing. I drink Christian coffee made by missionaries somewhere around the world. I use Christian diet plans that I call the Daniel Fast. And everything I do is churchy so that I'm not a part of the world. That's not what James is saying. And frankly, it's unchristlike. Who went into the world as people and reached them and healed them and talked with them and ate meals with them. It was the criticism of Jesus was he didn't watch enough Christian TV and enough Christian radio and he hung out with people who loved rock music and they didn't understand why he would do that. This passage is not meant to isolate churchgoers from the rest of the world. That's not what this is about. When James uses the phrase of the world, he means the patterns of this world. He means what we consider good in the world of power, exploitation, individual selfishness, and indulgence. He's saying, do not become friends with the way the world works. With power makes right, exploitation at all cost, and the pursuit of happiness to the exploitation of people around me. Jesus introduces us to a different way of living than the way of the world. Most succinctly tied up, and I'll read it in its entirety, in his introduction to the Sermon on the Mount that we call the Beatitudes. Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 3. God blesses those who are poor and realize their need for him, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. God blesses those who mourn, for they will be comforted. God blesses those who are humble, for they will inherit the whole earth. God blesses those who hunger and thirst for justice, for they will be satisfied. God blesses those who are merciful, for they will be shown mercy. God blesses those whose hearts are pure, for they will see God. God blesses those who work for peace, for they will be called children of God. God blesses those who are persecuted for doing right, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. When we read the teaching of Jesus and we look at the pattern of how he lived his life in the four biographies of his life, we see that the kingdom of God, as opposed to the kingdom of this world, is one of grace and sacrificial love. And that to live countercultural to the world is to not fight for yourself, but to fight for others at your own expense. And to trust that if I give of myself for others, God will take care of me. To live on less so that others can have more, the kingdom of God says you will always have enough. And if you love those who hurt you, you will have eternal peace from a God who loves you, though you have hurt him deeply. This is how we are friends with God and not friends with the world. To be a friend with the world is to love power and control, is to selfishly pursue your own desires at the expense of others, and to indulge your own whims that hurt yourself and hurt those around you. It's not about the actual people. Not, don't make this about an, an enemy of human flesh, but about the broken nature of this world. Essentially, what James is saying 
and almost this whole letter, you can tie it up in three words. Don't be selfish. Don't be selfish. Make this world about you. Control others for your own benefit. Pursue your own desires at all costs. Don't be selfish. Be selfless as our Savior Jesus Christ gave of himself for us. Jesus goes on to say this about selflessness. Matthew 6, 24. For no one can serve two masters, for you will hate one and love the other. You will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and be enslaved to money, be enslaved to your resources, be enslaved to your pleasures, be enslaved to your power and control. And I know that only a Sith deals in absolutes, and you can accuse Jesus of that all you want. But Jesus is pointing to an obvious truth. We need to recognize where our hope comes from, where our value comes from. Our value cannot come from multiple sources. If we're honest with our heart, our value of who we are comes from one source. Whether that is, your hope comes from the fact that you've raised a good family, your kids are good people and people will remember that about you. Whether your hope comes from, I've accumulated a lot of wealth and authority and so I can create safety for myself. Whether your hope is in your own good works and I've been a good person and I've helped others and that will make me a value. Or as James says, your hope is in Jesus and that he was good enough to cover all of our sin. And your hope is in Jesus and he laid down his life for us that we may live forever through him and with him. And that Jesus was righteous enough and Jesus has authority enough and Jesus has value enough in us and for us that our life has that value and then we can pour out of that abundance. James says, your pursuit of wealth and pleasure is a numbing from the reality that you are not whole. And until you rid yourself of that, you will not be ready to invite Jesus to heal you. Are we fighting for power and influence? To one day have the American dream, to be able to have beautiful vacations. I'm gonna be honest, I've had a lot of beautiful vacations. I'm 35, been married five years, have had a career and I don't envy children yet. So I've been able to have some fun vacations with my wife and my friends. But in my time of prayer and reflection, when I reflect on what has truly given me joy and purpose and peace, it's almost always relationships. It's almost always people, the people God has placed in my life, the value he's spoken to me through them. It's the laughter, the joy, the other image bearers of God that have been placed around me. And James says, don't let the stuff and your selfish desires cloud you to the idea that this is about relationship, that Jesus restored with you so that you can give selflessly to love others. The kingdom of God is about sacrificing your own will and pleasure for the love and care of others. If you're watching this in real time or in the fall of 2021, we have a very real application for that. In Kingdom Builders, we put projects and plans to help serve the communities around us and the world at large. As a church, we sacrifice to do that. Pennington AG Church, we give 10% of our total resources that come in 
go into Kingdom Builders that we can support missionaries and service projects around the world and in Mercer County. We invite you to give to Kingdom Builders sacrificially to do the same. And right now we have an opportunity to help local refugees coming in from war-torn Afghanistan, those that have partnered with our nation and veterans that have come back broken and in need of assistance. And we can give up some of our pleasures this year, this fall, going into Christmas to support those who are truly vulnerable and hurting. If you want an immediate application of what St. James is talking about, you can go to our website, go to Give, go to Kingdom Builders, Give right now, and we are prioritizing the project of partnering with Afghan refugees in Mercer County and New Jersey. It's about worldview. Do you view the world as being about your pleasure and peace? Or do you view the world about you giving peace and love to others as your God has given peace and love to you through Jesus Christ? Let's finish on the last four verses of the beginning of this chapter. James chapter 4 and verse 6. And he gives grace generously. As the scriptures say, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So humble yourselves before God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Come close to God, and God will come close to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, for your loyalty is divided between God and the world. Let there be tears for what you have done. Let there be sorrow and deep grief. Let there be sadness instead of laughter and gloom instead of joy. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up in honor. Oof, getting depressing, James. Let's lighten the mood a little bit here. James is talking about a divided heart. This is the essence of this chapter. A divided heart on how we feel. Do we have allegiance to our own desires or have we submitted them to the lordship of Jesus Christ in his kingdom. Jesus Christ, who though he was God, gave up his desire for peace and authority in heaven to humble himself and reconcile us back. The first verse here is a beautiful quote, maybe one of the most famous from this letter from James. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Very quotable, very pillow that you get at a Christian bookstore. This is one of those verses. It is beautiful in that it says, when we submit ourselves to the Lordship of Christ, he will be gracious and embrace us and love and heal us. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. It's the posture of saying, I don't know everything. I can't control everything. I am a broken person who needs a healer. I might be wrong about this. I've failed in a lot of areas. I've sinned in a lot of areas and hurt people and hurt myself. And that I can walk with hands open saying, I've made a lot of mistakes and I don't know everything about this world. And I submit myself to you, Christ Jesus, to teach me and guide me and move me forward. Honestly, we read the scriptures and James says this about submitting ourselves in the scriptures. You don't, even, you don't even trust them anymore or understand them. It's hard 
to read the entire Bible from cover to cover. That's hard in and of itself. It's 66 books, it's thousands of pages, sometimes the language is confusing, there's long lists of families. Reading the Bible from cover to cover can also be hard because it's a really old book written by a culture that we're not from. And there are rules and regulations, there's actions in the Old Testament and New Testament as well that are horrific as we read them. And it's easy to take it and say, you know what, this is 2021, we now, we have science and we have different morality and we're better and I'm not going to submit myself to that. I trust science. Some of my best friends have PhDs and are in the scientific field and I trust philosophy and I read a lot and I listen to multiple news sources, but also I walk with my hand open, trusting the mystery of God, that I am not divine and there's a lot I don't understand. And when I read the scriptures and there are parts I struggle with, I invite the Holy Spirit to just guide me. And I can sit in tension and say, God, I don't understand why you've done this or I don't understand how to live this part out. But I do understand when I read the scriptures how good Jesus is. And I do understand that when I pray to him and ask him to heal me, he responds. And I do understand that my life is different when I submit myself under him. And so Jesus, I trust that you trust this word and I trust that you are revealed in it and I submit myself to God, what you're saying in your kingdom, teach me and guide me. It's a posture of humility that we are so desperately in need of in our modern world. We are all so convinced that we are right and understand everything. James calls us to walk with a humble attitude that's teachable and correctable and invites God to guide us and shape us. I want to be known as humble. I do. That is one of the genuine desires of my life as a husband, as hopefully a future father one day, as a boss and as a pastor. I want to be known as humble. And when I read passages like Numbers 12.3 and it says about Moses that he was the most humble man to ever live, there's a part of me that's a little jealous. Ah, oh, man, what a cool thing to be said about you. And if you believe that Moses wrote the book of Numbers, what an odd thing to write about yourself. But to be called the most humble person who ever lived. What a beautiful desire of a, a great leader, a man with authority, to be able to say he was the most humble person. James talks a lot about wealth later in this passage and in this letter as a whole. It's almost the driving force of what he's warning against. He has a whole section in chapter 4 we're not going to talk about that covers wealth again. In wealth, we talk about control and power and pleasure and what we do with our resources. Do we use them to control others? Do we use them to control our world? Do we use them to avoid processing our own brokenness. And can we submit that to the work and the hand of Christ? In closing, James uses 10, 11 words of command on how to do this. And we'll close simply with these as practical ways. In this passage we just read, there's 11 different things James gives us a command to do. If you want advice on how to begin this process or this is all lofty, what do I do? James says, 
Humble yourself before God. Humble yourself. Admit that you might not know everything and can't control everything and be teachable. He then says, resist the devil. Push back on the desires of your heart that you know are selfish. Push back on the desires of your heart that you know are born out of anger or greed. Come near to God. Spend time drawing near into God's presence in silence and invite God to speak to you. Wash your hands. Ask for forgiveness. Come into a time of prayer and say, God, I know that I'm weak. I know that I'm selfish. Ask him for forgiveness in the process. Purify your hearts. Submitting it to God, allowing him, inviting Jesus to do the work of purifying our hearts. We don't do that. Jesus does and invite him to do it. Grieve with sorrow and deep grief. Feel the weight of your own sin. Be sad when you make mistakes. Be sad over the hurt of the world. And then bring it to God and say, I know that I'm broken. I see this. Let it grieve your heart. Mourn with deep sorrow. Wail. Three different words he uses. Have sorrow, mourn, and wail. So feel the feelings of this broken world. It's okay. Feel the feelings of your own brokenness. We all walk this journey of brokenness. Humble yourself again. Here the word is actually more like change yourself. Repent. Turn. Invite God to turn you and change you, correct you. Humble yourself again. And then lastly, draw near to God again. Eleven different action steps in this short passage of healing and brokenness and resisting and drawing near to God. James is one of the most practical books in the entire New Testament. One of the most practical letters written. But at the heart of it, in every chapter, is the desire to draw near to the person of Jesus, that we could become more like him, that I might have a heart like Jesus has a heart. Not selfish and for my own pleasures, but selfless and loving those around me. You may be watching this video and you may not be a follower of Jesus. You may not know him personally. And I want to give you an opportunity today to just take one step forward in that a beginning step of trusting him and inviting him into your life, practicing what James asked us of drawing near. If you are a follower of Jesus, use this as a time to reconnect and recommit into the kingdom of God. Pray with me. Jesus, I recognize today my own brokenness. I am not free. I am not whole. I can see this in my anxieties and guilts. And I have a desire to be healed. And I know that once my Netflix is off or my podcasts stop or my busyness slows down, when I'm not pursuing pleasure, there is in the back of my mind, in the depth of my soul, a real fear over who I am, what I'm made for, and what eternity looks like for me. Lord, I want you to heal me. And I believe that Jesus, you are the gateway. You are the entrance. You are the king of the kingdom. I believe that you lived on this earth as human and divine. 
I believe that you taught us the pathway of the kingdom. And then you took our sins upon yourself on the cross. You opened the door to eternity by forgiving us of sin and dying in our place. I believe that on the third day, you didn't remain dead, but you rose from the grave, resurrected, full of glory for eternity. And that by trusting in you and following you, Jesus, I myself can walk into eternity and have that completeness that James talks about, the fullness of life in this world now. Jesus, you gave your life for me. In this moment, I give my life to follow you, to figure this out, and to sit at your feet as your disciple. We thank you, Jesus. We pray that our hearts would be more like yours. In the name of Jesus, amen. Thank you uh, for joining us for this teaching from Pennington AG Church.